Well, let's take our Bibles tonight, and uh, of course, um, some of you might rejoice with this, others may be saddened, most of you will probably rejoice, but this is the last night we have in our, uh, in the, just the, the pictures and things, the tour uh, from the Holy Land, and I hope it's been an encouragement to you. I know it's always, um, you know, pictures, yeah, I can kind of see that, but you know, when you're, when you're able to go and, and walk in the same place and see these things and, and, uh, and just be in the land and read the Word of God and, and study it there. It just brings so many things to light. And so tonight we're going to, Lord willing, we're going to end. And, and this, this, this evening there's pictures. There's some places that we visited to, that we'll show you tonight that are not necessarily biblical sites. Uh, but they are, they were just beautiful. The, is, the nation of Israel is a land like no other. It is absolutely beautiful. And uh, in my office, I still have some brochures. If you're interested, boy, we sure would love for you to go with us. Uh, January 2024, we're going to give you over a year uh, to prepare. And it'll be, it'll be the trip of a lifetime, I promise you that. And it'll, it'll open your eyes to the Word of God like never before. And so tonight we're going to begin... Uh, the first place, I think it's in Gedi, no, uh, in Gedi or Qumran, where the time you turn that slide there, yep, Qumran. Does anybody know what happened here in this place? Now, I would tell you, this is not a biblical location. Qumran is not a biblical location, but it does have biblical significance. Does, can anyone tell me what was found here? The Dead Sea Scrolls. I think I heard somebody say it over here. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. If you look, I mean, we're hundreds of yards from this cave right there in the middle of the screen. And you can barely make them out, but there's a, there are groups of people hiking up into these caves. And, and you can go in there, you can, you can see the places. There's a museum here where you can actually see fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, next picture, please. Here's another picture from from here looking down into the valley and another cave. But uh, this, this is a site where the Dead Seas were, uh, scrolls were recovered. Also, I don't think I have any pictures of the ruins that were discovered here. But some, some believe that it's possible that John the Baptist lived in this area and was part of uh, the Essene sect of people dwelling here. And they worked to, to labor, to copy the scriptures. And so there's a place of biblical preservation, really, uh, that, uh, that took place in this, in this area, right here along the Dead Sea, along the shores of the Dead Sea. Next picture, please. This place is pretty cool. How many of you know what happened in, in En Gedi? Let's take our Bibles and uh, turn with me, please, to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter number 24, where we begin tonight. Uh, in Getty, it's a beautiful place. You drive for about 45 minutes uh, to an hour south, or I'm sorry, not south, um, but east of Jerusalem. You come down uh, to a place called En Gedi. And En Gedi is a place, it's a wilderness city. It's a place where, where David dwelt as he was seeking uh, refuge from from. Uh, from King Saul. Uh, it's here where the, the Moabites and the, the Ammonites encamped while they were coming against Israel. And, but this is just a, an amazing place. Uh, if you could really 
take a bird's eye view of the location. It's quite amazing. Uh, there are ibex everywhere. And how many of you know what an ibex is? Uh, two, three, four, five. Huge. There's like a, a ram, rams. They're goats that that dwell in the mountains. And you're you're just walking around, and they're from me to Udi. Uh, seriously, and they're they're climbing. They're climbing up inside the trees. It's quite. It's it's just neat. This is a this is a wildlife uh, uh, refuge, a, a national park. But this is in, right here in the Dead Sea. It's it's barren wilderness, and then you have this. And uh, there's a river that flows down through here, thus the the vegetation. But you see, even off in the cliffs in the background, the caves where it's likely that that King David possibly hid. Uh, in these as he, was, as he was hiding from Saul. But one of the, the most amazing stories in all of uh, the mention of En Gedi in the Word of God is found here in 1 Samuel chapter number 24. We're going to begin reading. Let's just begin reading in verse number 1. And uh, we'll, we'll try to, we may read the whole chapter, we may not. We'll see what God does. But look what it says in verse number 1, 1 Samuel chapter number 24. It says, And it came to pass... When Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so this location, this is where David was. It says, And uh, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And I mean, you just see it, I mean, it's just everywhere. It's, it's incredible. Oh man, man, I need to get a hunting license here because I kid you not. I mean, there were some ibex. I mean, their their horns were about this tall, and they're just making man. I would probably go to prison. It's not worth it. But um, anyhow, it says and it came to pass. Uh, it says and he came to the sheep coats, By the way, where was a cave? And the Bible says and Saul went in. To, the, to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. So, so picture this. Next slide, please. Uh, there's, you know, here's another angle of En Gedi. There's a, the rivers down here in the bottom, but just caves up here along the way. And imagine Saul and his men holding out in, these, in one of these caves, and, and, or David holding out in one of these caves, and Saul comes in, and they're all in there at the same time. Interesting. Don't move, guys. Stop breathing so heavily. And, but the Bible says something profound happens here, and I never understood it until we went this time, and it was better explained to me. And the Bible goes on to say, in verse number 4, it says, And, and the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day, of, uh, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him uh, as it shall seem good unto thee. So David's men are basically telling David, hey, here's your opportunity, kill the man. This is your chance. This is, you're never going to get a, a sweeter opportunity than this. Don't, don't miss it. But we see David's response. He says, then David arose, and I want you to notice he says, and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. What is the significance of this? 
The Bible goes on to say, and he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Was, why was, what is the significance here of, of Saul's skirt? Is it, and understand this, it's not a dress, okay? But what is the skirt which he's referring to? So, when you go to Israel, you're exposed to a lot of the, the much, much of the culture, uh, the, the customs of the law. And the skirt which David was referring to was not the hem of his clothes. So Saul didn't lay down and David didn't sneak up and cut a handful of, of Saul's pant leg off. That's not the skirt that, that David was talking about. Underneath the armor. And so as you walk the streets of Jerusalem, you'll see these soldiers, these, these members of the IDF, the Israel Defense Force. And, and, they've, and they're, these men, they've got their yarmulkes on, uh, and they've got their prayer robes on. And at the end of these prayer robes, that, that there's the tassels that hang down. How many of you have ever seen an Orthodox Jew? And they've got the, the, the tassels that hang off of their garments. This is what David cut off of Saul. And his heart smote him. Because it was symbolic of God's presence. Not so much that David did anything ill toward the man himself, but the fact that he, that he hindered his relationship with God is how, they, how he viewed it. And, and it happened here in En Gedi. And, and you see David's response and how, how he was convicted for what he had done. You know, sometimes I often wonder in our own lives, how often we either help someone's walk with the Lord or hinder one's walk with the Lord. I'm thankful that my relationship with God does not depend upon what I wear. It doesn't depend on, on whether or not I'm wearing a three-piece suit or a full-breasted suit or a double-breasted suit or if I know how to tie a full Windsor tie or, or whatever the case is. My relationship with God does not depend on some ex external thing. My relationship with God stems from Christ and His dwelling presence in my life. But at the same time, I can either... Act a way that would benefit your Christian life or hinder your Christian life. And this is the same, this is, this is the conviction that, that David had, that he hindered the man's walk with God. And, you know, as we sit here and, we, and we're in amazement of the beauty of the place, we remember what happened at the place. And may God help us every time we think of En Gedi to consider others? Am I helping someone in their walk with the Lord? Or, I could, or could I be hindering them in their walk with God? Next, next picture, please. This is another, another picture of En Gedi. Another, next slide, please. So this is an amazing view. This is so off in the background, you see the Dead Sea. And it's actually receding. It's, it's lower this year than it was last year. I think they say it, it recedes by 10 feet every year. 
Um, but this is taking, this, this is where I'm standing is not a biblical place. It's, a, it's an amazing place. It's a neat place. It's a fortress at the top of a mountain. It's 1,800 feet above, uh, above the, sea, the Dead Sea. And uh, the Dead Sea, again, this is the, the lowest point in the, or on earth, the Dead Sea. Um, but we're, this is the top, from the top of Masada. How many of you have ever heard of Masada? I hiked it, about, it liked to have killed me. Um, the last time we were there in 2015, I rode the tram to the top. If I go back, I'm going to ride the tram to the top. It's just not worth it. Um, you get about a third of the way up, and the rest of the way is stairs. <laughs> and uh, no burn, no earn. But um, anyway, a beautiful place. But this was uh, a, um, a fortress of Herod the Great that he had built here overlooking the Dead Sea. And it was used by the Jews between the years 70 and 73 AD uh, as, as the Romans came and conquered Jerusalem under Titus uh, in 72. Uh, they, they came here, uh, and this was the last holdout. And uh, I don't know if I've got another picture. Turn next picture, please. I don't think I have it, but there's the Dead Sea off in the, in the distance. This is from the bottom of Masada, or near the bottom of Masada, before the hike got too arduous and I forgot about taking pictures. Um, but the Romans, they encamped around Masada. They, they laid siege to it. And with slave labor, they built a land bridge uh, that allowed them to penetrate the walls of the fort 1,800 feet um, above them. The night before they, the, the Romans broke through the walls, all, the, all the, the inhabitants of the fort got together and decided that they were not going to allow uh, the Romans to come in and kill them. So they, they all committed suicide uh, that night. Um, but they wanted the Romans to know that it was not for lack of food or lack of water. And so they didn't destroy their food stores, and they made sure that the water was still in abundant supply. But they, they were fearful of, of what the Roman soldiers would do to their, to their wives and children. And so they, they killed themselves the night before they came in. But this is a nation, like a, a national landmark. Um, the... The military that would, would, I guess, I was told, I don't know if they still do, they used to, they used to run to the top of Masada um, as a, as a, as a uh, training exercise but, or to, to pass through basic training. But anyway, just a beautiful place. You see uh, the mountains of Gilead off in the distance there. Also, uh, that is, that is modern-day Jordan off in the distance. Next picture, please. From here, we, we're, now we're in the city of David. Um, in the background, you see the Mount of Olives. Uh, you, I don't know if you can, you can see it very well, but uh, directly above the word the in the picture, you see a, a bunch of trees. That's Gethsemane right there. You've got the, the Kidron Valley here, and you've got the Mount of Olives. But this is the city of David. So this is where David lived. This is where his palace was. And there's just... in an, and an incredible amount of history right here in this place. Next, next slide, please. This, these are the ruins uh, that date back to the time of Jeremiah the prophet. Uh, 
it's believed that somewhere in this vicinity, Jeremiah was imprisoned. How many of you remember when he sank down in the mire? Up to his, his, his armpits, really, in the mire. It was somewhere in this vicinity, all for telling the truth. Right? All for preaching the word of God. Next, please, next picture, please. What is this a picture of? Anybody know? A bunch of rocks? This is, this is David's palace. Or they believe this is David's palace. Um, next picture, please. This is what that would possibly would have looked like uh, in, David's, in David's time. Uh, this is the palace of David and the city of David. Next picture, please. Um, we're going to hold off right here telling you what you see. But I want you to, to look with me, if you would. Um, let's uh, look together. Oh, man, there's so much here in, in the city of David. Uh, I mean, David moves his capital here. In the city of David is where you find Caiaphas' house. Um, but this, I'll just tell you. Um, so down here in the middle, so you're looking down, you see a stairway with a railing just beyond that. They have just unearthed where they believe David stored the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, prior to him building, the, to Solomon building the temple. And they, they found all kinds of different artifacts here that, that attest to that very truth. That this is where the ark was in the time of David. Next picture, please. This is pretty cool. Um, this is Hezekiah's tunnel. I want you to look with me, if you would, in uh, 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles chapter number 32. 2 Chronicles chapter number 32. And um, something amazing. This is, this is just the, the history of what happened here is, is phenomenal. But in 2 Chronicles chapter number 32, in verse number 24, the Bible says this. It says, in those days Hezekiah was sick to death, or to the death, and prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. But Hezekiah rendered not again according uh, to the benefit done unto him, for, this, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them, in the, day, in the days of Hezekiah. But the Bible says this in verse number 27. It says, And Hezekiah had exceeding much riches and honor, and he made himself treasures uh, for silver and for gold and for precious stones and for, uh, for spices and for shields and for all manner of pleasant vessels, storehouses also for the increase of corn and wine and oil and stalls for all manner of beasts and coats for flocks. Moreover, he provided him cities and possessions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him substance very much. And the Bible says in verse number 30, And uh, this same Hezekiah also stopped the upper water course of Gihon and brought it straight down to the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in his works. Why did, why did Hezekiah stop the Gion Spring? Does anybody remember? What was taking place? 
Yeah, the, the Syrians or the, had come. And so now, they, they didn't want the Assyrians to access their water. And they didn't want, they needed water in the city of Jerusalem. So, Hezekiah and his men engineered this great feat. And one group of men began to tunnel one direction, and the, another group of men began to tunnel another direction, and they connected that guy on spring, and they diverted the water inside the city. And uh, God used it. And, and you can go down, and you can tunnel. You can see it. Next picture, please. It's my, it's my Hezekiah tunnel selfie. There you go. But this is, I mean, this is where you can go, and you can still see where the chisel marks are on the walls, where these men just worked tirelessly to really to save their lives. Next picture, please. So this is at the bottom, and this is the Gihon Spring. Other than the fact that this water supplied the city of Jerusalem, what other significant event happened here? It's quite amazing to, to know. I want you to look with me, if you would, uh, to First to Kings, First Kings chapter number uh, chapter number one. First Kings chapter number one, and notice what the Bible says, beginning in uh, in verse number thirty-two. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32, the Bible says, and, and King David said, Call me Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. And they came before the king, and the king also said unto them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and cause Solomon my son to ride upon my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. This is where they brought Solomon. And guess what happened here at the Gihon Spring? This is where Solomon was anointed king over Israel. The Bible goes on to say, And, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there, king over Israel, and blow ye the trumpet, and say, God save King Solomon. This is, this is where Solomon was made the king over Israel. Right here at the Gihon Spring. And, of course, it's, there's still water. You can't see it, but there's still water here. And from this place, there's also, this water also goes somewhere else. Can anyone, else, can anyone tell me where the water from the Guyon Spring goes? A pool of Siloam. Next picture, please. It goes to the Pool of Siloam. So when you exit the tunnel, this is where you come out. Or near this. This is the Pool of Siloam. And you can see there's people sitting on the steps. There's still water in the Pool of Siloam. There are certain times where you can actually hike through Hezekiah's tunnel and the water will be up to your waist. I opted to not do that. Um, but yeah, it's an amazing place. It's a beautiful place. It used to be a parking lot. And then they were digging and they found uh, antiquities. And so they, the parking lot's no longer there. But this is the Pool of Siloam. I want you to look in the, in the New Testament, please. 
New Testament in John chapter number 9. John chapter number 9. And again, pictures are worth a thousand words. You've got to go there to really catch the full understanding of the place. The Bible says in verse number 1 of John chapter number 9, says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he was, I'm sorry, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, you ever wonder what people were thinking? Can you imagine? I mean, I'm not trying to be irreverent or anything tonight. But where did you get that mud? It hasn't rained here in days. Oh, I made that. Right? From what? Right. You wonder what people were thinking when all this happened. right? But the Lord, regardless, he spit on the ground, made clay, put the clay on the man's eyes. And the Bible goes on to say in verse number 7, And said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. So the Lord sent the blind man here, and he washed and came seeing. What, a, what an amazing place. Next picture, please. That's water in the pool of Siloam. You can, you can see the reflection off on the right-hand side of the picture. Next picture, please. This is pretty amazing. This was just, I, the last time we were there, I didn't see this. Uh, so every time you go, you see something new because they're always digging. They're always finding more things. This is a first century street from the time of Christ. It is highly likely that Jesus walked up these steps on his way to the temple. Uh, on the right hand, of course, this is all underground. You see uh, the I-beams reinforcing. It's like a mine shaft as you're walking up in here. But, they've, but you see, they've, they've set it up to make uh, a display. But off on the right-hand side of the picture, you see tapestries hanging. Um, like there would have been an, like a bazaar or a market where people could buy perhaps animals for sacrifice as they made their way up, uh, up to the temple uh, to worship, and they, I mean, they find all, found all kinds of amazing things there, but this is right here, right there at the Pool of Siloam. Next picture, please. This is pretty neat. This is the tomb of King David. I want you to look with me, if you would please, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter number 2. Uh, I did not, I've been here before, I was there in 2015, um, but I did not understand uh, the, the significance of the location as it pertained to a New Testament events. Uh, so we're, uh, this is the tomb of King David. Next picture, please. This is right here, again, in the city of David, 
underneath that, that tapestry is a sarcophagus, and inside that sarcophagus is David, or what's left of him, right? And so this is the tomb of David. But the last time I was there, I didn't, I didn't understand that there's also something immediately above this, upstairs. Brother John is not allowed to answer the question. Can anyone tell me what you'll find upstairs above the tomb of David? You find the upper room. Next picture, please. You come outside. Here's the upper room on that doorway. Next picture. You're inside. This is the upper room. Right below us is David's tomb. I want you to look at what the Bible says in Acts chapter number 2. In Acts chapter number 2, in verse number 29, of course, this, this room, it doesn't look like it did in Jesus' day. I'll just tell you that. Uh, there was a, the Byzantine era came in and they changed uh, the architecture. And then the Muslim period came in. What you see here, this is all Muslim period. The arches, all Muslim period. The stained glass, there's, it's all in Arabic. But this is the upper room. This is the place where Christ and his disciples observed uh, the Passover meal the night he was betrayed. This is the place where the church had gathered in Acts chapters 1 and 2, waiting uh, for the day of Pentecost. When the, this is where the Holy Spirit came. But in Acts chapter 2, of course, early on in the chapter, we read about the, the Holy Spirit coming upon, but, but now we see Peter preaching. And in Acts chapter 2, in verse, uh, verse number twenty. Uh, verse number 29, Peter says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that is he both dead and buried, and notice what it says, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. His sepulcher is with us unto this day. He's like, he's right here. He's under our feet. It's just amazing. You go and, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I, I had read the book of Acts and I had never caught that until I was there. And we saw it. Next picture, please. This is another place. There's, uh, this is the Western Wall. Uh, we were able to go and, and take a few moments. We prayed at the Western Wall. Um, but this is also referred to as the Wailing Wall. This is the Foundation Wall of the Temple Mount. So immediately above this is the Temple Mount. You've got the Al-Aqsa Mosque. You've got the Dome of the Rock, which has to come down. Um, but yeah, this is, this is what the Western Wall looks like. They used to call it the Wailing Wall because the Jews were only allowed there once a year. And on that day, they would come and they would wail. They would pray so fervently, so earnestly that it was, it was, they were wailing like they were crying. But this is the Western Wall. Next picture, please. This is significant. 
Um, the arch that you see is, uh, this is, this is the location where Christ was put on trial. This is where he stood before Pontius Pilate. Right here, believed to be in the, roughly in that arch area. Next picture, please. And as you, we don't, you don't understand what you're looking at without turning uh, to the passage. Look with me, if you would, please, in, in John chapter number 19. Um, everything carries weight. Everywhere you go, for a Bible-believing Christian, everything is significant. Not because the place, but because of what happened at the place. Um, what you are seeing here, this is Gabbatha. I want you to, next, next picture, please. This is the pavement. What's the pavement? What does this have to do with anything? I want you to look in John chapter number 19 and notice what the Bible says in verse number 13. It says, When Pilate therefore heard that, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement. But in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. So this, we're underground. The city is built upon this. You're almost down in almost like a sewer area or a catacomb feeling what it was. But you see the, the, the grooves in the rock. That's why they call it the pavement. The grooves were so that the horses wouldn't slip. This is a place of torture. This is a place of violence. A place of execution. More often than not. Next picture, please. This is the place where Jesus was tried. Um, I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 27. There are, I mean, there are powerful places that we've seen. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was a powerful place. Um, and I have to look back. I mean, everywhere you go, there, it's significant. The garden tomb, obviously, powerful place. But in Matthew chapter 27, in verse number 27, the Bible says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto them the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they, they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And I want you to look also in Mark chapter 15. This is what had taken place here in Gabbatha. This is where Jesus was scourged. This is where he was beaten. In Mark chapter number 15, in verse number 15, the Bible says, And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away 
into the hall called Praetorium. Here it is. And, and, they, uh, and they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple and planted a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowed their knees and worshipped him. And when they mocked him, they took off the purple and put on his own clothes and led him out to crucify him. And uh, they compel Simon of Cyrene, uh, who passed by, uh, coming out of the country, uh, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of the skull. And, and so all of this is a significance. But right here, there's a, there's a, there's a picture frame. I, you really, it's hard to see in this picture... But if you look closely, you see a circle etched in the rock. I don't know if you can kind of see it, maybe, maybe not. You know what they did here? This is where they played the games and cast lots for his clothes. This is where all of this happened. Most people wouldn't survive the beating. Next picture, please. Just another plate, another picture of where Christ was, was, was beaten. Next picture, please. You know, we, we, in that place of, of great agony, in that place of, of pain and suffering, where Christ would be taken to be crucified, you know, last week we saw the, the empty tomb, and the fact that Christ is victorious. This is the eastern gate. It doesn't look like much. I'm actually standing in a Muslim cemetery, taking a picture of, of the eastern gate. Funny story. So we're in the, we're in the airport. It's about 1 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we're waiting to catch our flight back to New York. And this Jewish man who'd come to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, he's sitting there and he's, he's talking and he's telling about, because we had just walked through the Sheep Gate, uh, which is in, in, uh, right there by the Pool of Bethesda, the Sheep Market, the Pool, the Sheep Gate. This is all right here, just around the corner. But anyway, the man had been at, at the Sheep Gate earlier as well. He had been here at the Eastern Gate earlier and he watched them carry out a, a coffin, this, this group of Muslims. They had just had a, cemetery, uh, a funeral in the cemetery that night. And the man watched as they carried this man. You could see the man's body just because he showed us pictures and videos of this man. But we were walking by or walking down the sidewalk and there was an empty, uh, an empty casket. Brother Gary, you've seen a lot of crazy things. But man, that's probably the craziest thing I'd ever seen. Just an empty casket laying there on the side of the, of the sidewalk where they had just interned the man. But this is the eastern gate. What happens? Why is the eastern gate so important? You can't get through this gate right now because the Muslims are very superstitious. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they built... They built... They, they, a wall blocking off the gate so Jesus can't come in. 
And they assumed that no holy man would walk through a cemetery. So they put a bunch of dead bodies in front of it. Just, it's just wild and crazy. If there was no truth in it, why would they worry? Because even they understand that Jesus is the Christ. Even if they don't want to admit it. But the eastern gate, this is where Christ will enter when he comes back. He will enter here and be coronated king over all the earth. I'm looking forward to that day. Next picture, please. This is the Valley of Elah. Well, as we close tonight, let's look back in the Old Testament, book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, the story that all the kids love, and we adults love too, happens here in the Valley of Elah. On the left-hand side, you see a very steep hill. This is where the, the children of Israel, the armies of Israel, would have been encamped. Um, the armies of Saul would have been encamped. We are standing on the battlefield right now. Behind me is where the Philistines would have encamped and where Goliath, the champion of Gath, would have come out and, and blasphemed God and intimidated the host. But something I never knew until this year is where the cave of Adullam is. How many... What's significant? Does anybody know about the cave of Adullam? What happened? Why is the cave of Adullam so important? There's no wrong answers unless you're wrong. But I won't embarrass you, I promise. Who hid out? Who hid in the cave of Adullam? David. Do you know where the cave of Adullam is? See that tuft of trees in the background? We weren't able to see it because it was getting dark. The cave of Adullam is right here adjacent to the Valley of Elah. Just the proximity of everything, just astounding. This is where David fled. This is where all those that were in distressed and discontented came to David. And where David became a captain over them, about 400 men. And this is, that was, that was a good day in David's life. But he went there a discouraged man. A defeated man. But God gave him victory. But the Valley of Elah, it's special. Right here on the left side of the picture, there's a bank that goes down. And there's a brook. There was no water in that brook. So we were able to go down and gather some stones out of the brook. This is where David fetched his stones, his five smooth stones, and went out. And somewhere around here, is where David killed Goliath. I want you to look what the Bible says. In 1 Samuel chapter number 17, as we close tonight, and I'll leave you with this. In verse number 32, the Bible says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight this Philistine. Saul must have been quite the man if he let a boy go out and face a giant. Whose job was it to go and fight Goliath? It was Saul's job. 
You know, Saul was the biggest man in Israel, if you recall. He was head and shoulders above all men. He was, he was the champion of Israel for all intents and purposes, but he wanted, no, he wanted nothing to do with Goliath, the champion of Gath. So David comes, he's fine, I'll go. I, he'd, heard, he'd heard, all, heard all of the things that Goliath spewed from his mouth, all the blasphemies, all the reproach, all of the mockings. And he said, I'll do it. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and, a, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. And David said, Moreover, the Lord, hath, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. What a coward. We see the, the faith of David. The Bible says in verse 38, and Saul armed David, Saul armed David with his armor, and put a helmet of brass upon his head, and also he armed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. And David put them off him. And he took his staff in his hand, and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in his shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air, and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But notice what he says in verse 45. But I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcass of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And it came to pass, when the Philistine arose, and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. David was not going to back down. There was not one, there was not one, there was, there was no fear in David. He was full of faith. The Bible, the Bible says, The wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. 
And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell upon his face to the earth. The Bible says, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him, and, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took, the, took his sword and drew it out of its sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. What an amazing sight that must have been. Can you imagine? You probably could have heard a pin drop. Can you believe just what just happened? This boy, this baby-faced little kid, he was ruddy and of a fair countenance. He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a military man. He was a kid. He was a shepherd. But with a sling and a stone, he prevailed over David. And that day, all the earth knew there was a God in Israel. Can you imagine what God can do with anyone willing to step out in faith. He jeoparded his own life for the cause of Christ. Look back, if you would please, earlier in the chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse number 29. This year, our church, our theme has been to count for Jesus. I want my life to matter for the Lord. Everything I do, everything I say, I want my life to count. I don't, at the end of my life, I don't want to stand before the Lord empty-handed. wishing, And I will wish I had done more. And I will wish I had done things differently, no doubt about it. But David made a great statement here. In verse 29, he says, Is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? And it's amazing tonight, this is the last evening service our church will have in 2022 if my mind is succinct with my calendar. Next week, there will be no evening service. Christmas Day, spend time with your family. God has brought us a long way. We started here back in early January. And God has seen fit for us to end here tonight. Church, is there not a cause? As you look back over the year... Twelve months have come and gone like a whirlwind, hasn't it been? Where has the time gone? Have you lived your life to count for Jesus? Have you lived your life with reckless abandon for the Lord? 
Have you stepped out by faith? Have you followed God's leadership? Have you trusted Him? Has your motivation been David's motivation that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel? Has your motivation this year been for God's glory or has it been for thine own? Church, is there not a cause? You know, we can squander our time, can't we? We can waste time. We can live with misplaced priority. But I'm thankful that God is faithful. And that if we've not lived as we should have lived over the last 12 months, it's not too late to begin today. As 2022 will soon be over, 2023 presents us with just as much opportunity to live for Christ as any other time before. We can't change yesterday. But by God's grace, we can live for Him today. Church, is there not a cause that all the earth may know? Will you live the rest of the year? Will you live from this point forward with the same conviction, the same courage, the same faith as David expressed here? We may not face a giant that's nine feet tall, thankfully. But we may face some huge obstacles in life. There is no way David could have defeated that giant. There's no way that you and I can overcome our adversaries here except by faith in God. We must trust in Him. Will you live your life to count for Jesus? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. In just a moment, we'll be dismissed. We'll do something a little differently tonight. We're not going to have the piano play this evening. As the last service our church will hold on a Sunday evening this year, the last Sunday night service, Right where you sit, will you ask the Lord to help you live a life that would count for Jesus Christ? Is there not a cause? If your priorities have been wrong, ask God to help you rearrange those priorities. If Christ hasn't been preeminent, give Him that place tonight. It's not too late. The Bible says a living dog is better than a dead lion. We still have time. And God can use our lives for His glory as we yield ourselves to Him. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of these great men of old. 
We thank you for the likes of David, who, like us, is a man, imperfect, a sinner at best. But Lord, a man who loved you, a man with whom you've made a promise, a man through whom, through his, his family, is, has sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to suffer and bleed and die for our sin. Lord, tonight we ask that you would help us live with the same faith and conviction, the same, the same courage as David demonstrated here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Lord, is there not a cause? Lord, life is, is good at distracting us from what's most important. Lord, while we're thankful for our families, while we're thankful uh, for those you've blessed us with in our homes, we know that we can, we'll never be the Christian fathers, wives, uh, husbands, mothers, Lord, that we need to be. We'll never be the children we need to be, except we live right with Thee. So, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us tonight in this matter and that we would live lives that would count for Christ both in and out of the home. Lord, we pray that you'd be glorified in all that's done. Lord, as this year comes to a close, may we live on purpose for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.